Welcome back to episode two of Unfiltered. Today, we will be talking about that age-old question, what should I do with my life? About dreams, about following your dreams, but a very different take on following your dreams. Elena Shalneva, author of a new book, The Woman of the Year, an Inciada-turned-novelist, looks at dreams through a very different lens. It is the subject of her book, and it is the subject of some of the reflections she shares today in this episode. Here then is episode two of Unfiltered with Elena Shalneva. It's a pleasure to be here, Arvind. Thank you for having me. When you were at INSEAD, did you know you always wanted to be a novelist? Absolutely not. Uh, I went to INSEAD to uh, be a banker. I ended up being a fund manager instead for almost 20 years I worked in the city and in France in the financial sector. So this is a completely unprecedented career shift. What did you do before you went to INSEAD? Well, I have a very unusual background for the INSEAD because I'm by training, I'm a literary critic. So I joined INSEAD from academia and I was an assistant professor and I was teaching 20th century French literature. So um, I had a very hard time, um, especially in P1 and P2, learning all these subjects, which for my group mates were extremely easy because my group mates were an investment banker, an accountant, a management consultant, and an engineer. So obviously they had very good knowledge of statistics, finance, marketing, and all those disciplines which were completely new to me. So, and I had to compete with them on the bell curve. So that what it was an excruciatingly difficult period, having been a wonderful period socially at the same time. Um, but I managed to pull through in the end. Given that background where you were an academic, how did you then make the switch to becoming a banker? Well, after INSEAD, this is what you were supposed to do, wasn't uh, weren't you? And that was 2002, and I think the two career paths were banker or management consultant. And I think entrepreneurship only started sort of figuring out back then. And... Um, Money was a motivator, of, of course, course. and uh, it always is. And uh, as I was thinking about my career, I think risk was another motivator. And I wasn't a banker. I was. I, mean, I became. I wanted to be a banker. I ended up being a fund manager and an investor relations professional. And sort of compared to being a novelist or a liberal arts professional, this is quite secure job. I mean, if you're fired from one bank, you'll be hired by another. So, um, you know, with an NCAT pedigree, it's quite easy. So I think I was, I, I chose the traditional path of, you know, having a steady job and accumulating um, sort of steady wealth and um, doing what everyone else is doing. And do you think that was a um, an important part of your eventually then choosing to go back into writing? I mean, a lot, when, when people think about more creative entrepreneurial professions, uh, the common wisdom is that, you know, this is a great thing to do and, and all the glamour associated with it. Fewer people potentially talk about being ready as a person to take that that step. Do you think that made a difference in your case? 
it only made the difference is that I did, I, I went into, well, I won't call it entrepreneurship, I will call it sort of really artistic endeavor, which is even riskier probably than entrepreneurship. I only did it because I've earned enough money to do it. So if, if you want to call it, I chose the path of a coward. So I first earned my money, um, then I started doing what I love doing. Um, so there is no kudos to me for being brave here, because had I been brave, I would have started writing a novel straight after university and then seeing, and then the novel could have succeeded and I would have earned a lot of money and I would have been successful or it could have flopped. And that I didn't want to do. That was too risky. That was too uncertain. So what I did, I worked in the city for 20 years. Then I started my own company and I saw sold a stake in it, Invest Relations Company. I sold a stake in it at the right time and at a good price, and that guaranteed me financial security to do what I wanted to do. And so I started doing what I wanted to do 20 years after I actually wanted it. So, and the question is still out there, whether this is the right path to ensure your economic well-being first and then experiment or whether you should follow your dreams from the start and the jury is out there and i don't think there is a solution to that problem but it's definitely a most interesting problem and this is the central issue in in my novel the woman of the year perhaps we transition then to how you went from finance how you made the decision to doing the the, the thing that you really wanted to do well, I've earned money, I retired, and I found myself for the first time in 20 years um, with having nothing to do, So, um, which was wonderful for, a, for the first two months. Um, then, predictably, it started getting boring. In sort of, in 20 years, I even forgot what my dreams were initially, because you do that because sort of the career that you choose, even if it is, was not the career that you wanted, sucks you in and you find pleasure in it inevitably. Yeah, otherwise you won't be able to, to, you know, to survive. So I started, um, I became a newspaper columnist. Uh, you know, City AM, the newspaper, which I'm not yeah. even sure if it exists any longer, but I started writing a business column um, on office politics and I did it for five years. Then I started writing literary reviews for, um, for the Telegraph among others. And I became a lecturer. So I actually, I was a visiting lecturer at INSEAD for a number of years, right. but most, more significantly, I became a lecturer at King's College London. And for six years, I taught two courses, which I developed for the master students and for the undergraduate students uh, on negotiations and on communications. And I only stopped last year uh, to take a sabbatical to finish my novel. And this is actually what triggered uh, the book, the main theme of the book, because teaching students, young, and these are very young people who are 20, 21, 
and um, many of them became close friends. Of course, most of them came to me for career advice and watching them year after year, watching the discrepancy between what these young people wanted to do in their lives and what they ended up doing mm -hmm. was to be honest, quite depressing because the discrepancy is huge. Yeah, the ambitions, the dreams are very high, but the reality has lots of limitations and um, our potential, our ability has lots of limitations. So what we want to be and what we end up doing is most of the time not the same thing. And that sort of triggered the idea of the novel, the central theme of which is this unrealized dreams of the youth. Fascinating. The premise of this novel is, as you said, um, people's dreams and uh, challenges along the way. Are there, are there particular lessons that you hope were hoping to leave, leave people with through this, through this book? I don't think there is a solution to this problem. So, but uh, the analysis is when students come to me, sort of in their prime, full of energy and hope and optimism, and tell me, so I'm looking for a job. I always tell them the same thing. Look, find the job you love because you'll be doing it for the next 40 years. And 40 years is a very long time to be miserable. Uh, and so off they go looking for the job they love, only to call me six months later and say, this is all good and well. I've been looking, I've been on the market for six months. I've got hundreds of rejections. I'm late on my rent. My landlord is threatening to evict me. I'm full of credit card debt and my student visa is about to expire. So what do you suggest I do? Keep looking for that dream job? And here, as the only thing I can say as a responsible adult and as a mentor is no. Forget about the dream. Take the first available job, which is decent enough. Pay off the rent, pay off the student loans, sort out your work visa, and maybe find a weekend hobby. And sort of this is where people actually end up doing. So, for example, quite recently there was a student, uh, a young girl, I won't mention from which of the two universities, not to identify anyone, but uh, she wanted to open an art gallery and she had absolutely everything to succeed because she studied history of art as an undergraduate. She had charisma, she had contacts, she had knowledge of the subject. And thanks to her business degree, she also had a good knowledge of how to start and run a business. So I was waiting any day for an invitation to a glossy opening of a Mayfair, of a Mayfair boutique. Instead, she sent me a text some months later saying that she started a job as a debt research analyst. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing wrong with debt research analysts. It's a wonderful job if you want to do it, but that was the last thing she wanted to do. So she can find her passion, which is art, to a weekend hobby. Yeah, so she goes to art galleries on weekends and maybe she dabbles with some painting and um, consulting. 
And I think this is quite, this is sort of one of the biggest tragedies of our lives is that most of us end up in that situation that a passion ends up to be a weekend hobby because most of us are not talented enough to make a living out of exercise of our passion. I mean, I personally wanted to be a ballerina, but I wasn't fast enough. My jump wasn't high enough, even though I trained for 15 years professionally. So I ended up to be a fund manager, huge discrepancy, right? So um, for most people, maybe the discrepancy is not that huge, but I know very few people who sort of at 45 are exactly in the place where they hope to be at 20. And um, there is no solution, as I say. Luck plays a big part. Uh, talent plays an even bigger part, which some people have and other people don't. And no matter what they do, they will never get there simply because they don't have it in them. But... Um, but yes, this is this is this is one of big life's uh, one of life's big questions. I think luck plays a much greater role in outcomes than people acknowledge, and then that may be a whole another podcast in itself. You used the word tragedy earlier in terms of this path that people take. Would you characterize it necessarily as a tragedy, or do you think more realistic uh, narratives in the early years of people's lives could be? something that we teach people at a young age? Well, that's that's an excellent question. And this is actually a question that I ask in my novel. What is better to reach for the stars? What is a better way of life? Reaching for the stars and aiming high and dreaming, knowing that most probably you will never get there or being satisfied with the little things. And this is the whole school, I think, of psychology or pseudo-psychology, whatever they call it, is just be grateful for what you have and uh, take pleasure in little things and be content with whatever life throws your way. If you had bread on the table, if you have a roof over your head, this is fine, this is enough. And maybe this is the question of personality. Maybe for some people that's enough and they train themselves for this to be enough. Um, it was certainly never enough for me and it was certainly never enough for most people I know. And I think our INSEAD reunions, I haven't gone to my, I haven't been to my 20th, but I've been to my 10th. Mm -hmm. And you already start seeing that sort of imbalance between people, very few of them, who are doing exactly what they thought they would be doing. And they're probably just a handful of them. And you see how happy they are. And people who actually ended up and moving further and further away from where they thought they would be. And they're not happy. But there is also another discrepancy between people who are still hoping to reach their dream and Inevitably, they have much less money and people who chose the conformist route of being a bank or management consultant or someone in the industry and who are having their second holiday homes and who are sending the children to private schools. And there is an invariable jealousy there, which mm. sort of occurs between these two groups. And 
again, the question is, as you initially, as you, as you just suggested, who wins, rich conformists or penniless romantics? And um, is it better to follow their dreams and have nothing and then become destitute but still have that dream? Or is it best to just shut it down and be content with having a great house, uh, great holidays, and basically being um, basically being economically satisfied? And these two needs, our need for intellectual fulfillment and our need for economic fulfillment, for material comforts, are both very strong. And which need is more important, I don't know. But I do know coming to the reunions because I, I, I went to two other universities that many people sort of tell me, well, where I am here is not at all where I wanted to be. And am I happy? I don't know. Would I have been happier if I, if I were where I wanted to be at 21? Probably. Again, I don't know, there is no solution to that because we all need to eat, we all need to satisfy our economic needs. And if we a, sort of persistently pursue a dream that is just not ours, that we're not made, made, we're not made to be there, we'll probably end up with a bin bag in Richmond Park. And I don't think this is a good, a good solution either. As a work of fiction, does your book offer a point of view on, on some of the questions that you just posed? It analyzes them and it dissects them in the most brutal way. I, I, it, it doesn't offer a solution, but it focuses a great deal also on talent. And right. it is about rivalry between two women, both of them fiercely intelligent and both of them highly ambitious, but only one has the real talent, or if you call it genius. So for her, everything comes naturally and easily as if in a game. And the other, no matter how hard she tries, she will never get there because she just doesn't have it in it, in her. And um, I mean, we can deny it as much as we want. And I remember at INSEAD, we had, I took a strategy elective and, the professor kept telling us that it's all about the strategy. If you set out about something in a clever way, if you sort of prepare, uh, you will definitely achieve your goals. Well, sorry, no, this is just not the case. And I'll give you an example. Did you take a negotiation course? I did. You were? Yeah, I, th I think it I, I think it was mandatory back then. I, I think it wasn't an elective. So I remember our first assignment when we had to, when we were paired up with someone randomly and we had to negotiate, I think selling up selling a house or something like this. This was something very simple. So it was just a matter of price. And I was paired up with with a classmate who actually became my best friend later on. And I remember it very clearly. I spent the whole weekend studying the case, reading all the materials, revising the lectures, preparing different scenarios. And uh, I came to this negotiation with this sort of fully, full, fully prepared. And he came after lunch. I think he read the case uh, on a park bench 
sort of outside outside the auditorium. I think he just had a beer and he beat me, sort of he beat me hands down, you know. So he was just more talented than me. Yeah, and my preparation counted for for for, for very little. So I think I think the solution also is that some people are naturally naturally have that ability, others don't. This is not to negate that you have to work hard and that of course you will do better in life if you if you persevere and if you struggle for it. But don't forget that life, first of all, has limitations and is highly conditioned. So very few people will actually get as far as they want, even with talent, simply because they're just not that many roles for talented people. Again, I'll give you an example of ballet. There are only 10 uh, ballet companies in the world, which are top ballet companies, and there are probably about 100, uh, 100 parts in the repertoire. And there are millions of potential belly dancers vying for this hundred parts. And more than a hundred of them are actually very talented, but only a hundred will get a job. And um, maybe you're right, maybe realizing early on that you have an ability to do something, uh, but not something else and maybe you're aiming too high is a route to happiness. Maybe if you can train yourself to sort of accept what, what you can do and what you can't do and confine your passion to a weekend hobby and to holidays. So if you like to paint, join a painting class in the evening and sort of sell your paintings to your friends. Maybe this is, maybe this is, how you will be happy and in my novel there is actually a character who does achieve happiness that way and she finds also happiness in the traditional route of of having a family of having a nice home of being able to afford good clothes and good food and um, sort of life's little luxuries and of course all that helps but there are some wretched souls who call with want something bigger better and more who always chase for something which is unreachable which is outside their grasp and uh these people exist and we all know them and i think reunions when you see someone every five or ten years always very clearly show people who are who went that route of reaching for the stars but never actually got there and are there for um probably think that their life didn't give them didn't give them everything that they deserved. Well, this is fascinating, Elena. Thank you for sort of sharing those insights. We could go on and on. Um, but I think you've you've absolutely uh, done what this podcast was hoping to do, which is to remind people of the conversations they used to have back when they were in Seattle. You've given people a lot of food for thought. So thank you for that. Where can people find your book? How can they be helpful to you? Uh, well, my book is on Amazon in every single country. It's both in Kindle and in paperback edition. And um, if the INSEAD community uh, buys my book and lets me know what they think, that will be uh, extremely interesting. And of course, the feedback from the colleagues 
is, is, is particularly important to me. Quite scary, I should add, quite daunting, uh, because, because, because these are my colleagues, this is my favorite school, but at the same time, very important to me. So thank you to those who will potentially uh, read my novel and do get in touch by email uh, or by LinkedIn and tell me what you thought. Fabulous. Thank you for being on Unfiltered. Right. An interesting and very different take on life and careers. A brutal dissection, as Elena puts it. She uses terms like wretched souls and the contrast between rich conformists and penniless romantics. You may or may not agree with some of what she said, but I hope you found it interesting. I hope it provokes a conversation. One of my takeaways that got me thinking was when she said that in 20 years, she forgot her dreams. And I wonder how true that is if, uh, for many of us as the years go by. As ever, if you have comments, do get in touch. If you're enjoying these episodes, let your fellow INSEADers know about the podcast. It's on most podcast platforms and they should be able to find it just by searching for INSEAD Unfiltered. Um, and if you'd like to share your story, again, get in touch, inseadpod at gmail.com. In our next episode, you'll hear Dr. Nermeen Varawala, the president of the UK INSEAD Alumni Association, and she gives us a few reflections on her own life and her path to INSEAD. See you then.